recognize this? This is not the lander. This is the the mega rover. You know, it's a it's a monster. Now, there was a photograph that came this week from NASA. Here it is. How many of you saw that? What is it? Yeah, it's a photograph from the Mars orbiter of the Mars lander, and you can actually see that it's traveled about four football lengths. Now, the same week this picture was taken, this one, uh, there was another event. Who knows what happened this week? Voyager left the heliosphere. English translation. It is now beyond all the planets, beyond the Kepler belt, beyond the Oort cloud. It is now free of the solar system and is the first object in interstellar space between the stars. Took it darn near 40 years to get there, but it made it, okay? <laughs> Who saw this? The biological revolution that happened this week. Who here has heard of junk DNA? Okay. For a long time, we knew, that there, we knew what some of the DNA did, and there's a lot of it. We had no idea what it did, so scientists you know, gave it a real technical term, junk DNA. English translation, we have no idea what it does. So happens, it's not junk. It is the triggers that tell the rest of the DNA what to do, which means that the potential for medicine is incredible. It will take years to unmap that, but that's, that's a, a, a huge leap in technology as it moves forward. Now, anytime anybody does a, a talk this, there's always the agenda. I want to give you my agenda and put it on the table, okay? Because this is not, for me, just an academic issue. This is an issue that's personal. Uh, how many of you grew up in the 50s and 60s? Okay, we are, you know... As Alice's Restaurant said, if there's one of you, it's weird. If it's two, it's a conspiracy. But ladies and gentlemen, if there's three of you, it's a movement, okay? <laughs> we are a movement. Uh, the thing about post-World War II, what was a, it was a period of incredible optimism, which anything seemed possible. Um, and science was just leapfrogging. I mean, uh, the, we wouldn't call them computers today, but IBM was cranking out the first computers. The, the petrochemical industry was cranking up plastics. It's all kinds of stuff we'd never seen before. Now, I grew up during that area, and I'm in, I am hardwired to have a positive view towards rationality and towards science. It's just who I am, I know there, and there are many of us that are out there. I also grew up in West Texas in a very, very conservative church, which there was a huge disconnect between what I learned at school and what I learned at the church. I mean, I go to church, we talk about demons and angels and all kinds of stuff that didn't seem to have any kind of connect with the stuff I was learning in school. So I, like many, grew up, it's almost like you had a foot in each world. It was just kind of strange. Now, for multiple reasons, when I was in junior high, I left the church and became an atheist. I say as an atheist, I probably was just rejecting the church that I came out of. Um, and one of the reasons was I simply could not buy into a faith that required me not to think. I could not buy into a faith that required me to take the best in human knowledge and put it aside and say that it was wrong. I simply, I could not do that. Years later, college and seminary stuff, I kind of worked through all that and realized that you can be a Christian and embrace science, or at least at that point, 
that there's a certain fundamental level of compatibility. And so I did that. And in the, in the meantime, I had a remarkable chance when I was a student at, at uh, McMurray College to do an internship. And knowing uh, my first two years I was, was pre-med, heavily into science, they sent me to work at a church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. You ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah, Los, the Los Alamos, where the atomic bomb was, was just. Two remarkable groups of people. I've told stories about one, which is the, the old-timers. This is Oppenheimer's team, the ones that were left. And they'd sit around and tell these wonderful stories about, you know, the day that they had an atomic bomb and they pushed the button and it didn't go bang. One of them had to climb up inside, open it up, and figure out why it did not go bang. <laughs> I figured most of the gray hair on that guy came that afternoon. Okay. <laughs> the other group were the Young Turks. Uh, I, I worked with Roger Shimon, lived in his house with his family. Roger Shimon was an engineer. He worked at the Mason Physics Facility. This is the early 1970s, 1971, 1972, 1973. And there's all these young physicists and young engineers, and they, they sit around these conversations, of course, which I could not follow. But they were saying very strange things. They were talking about something called quarks. Now, this is 20 years before quarks ever hit the media. And they talked about that, that quarks, and they, they, even, they even named some of them called strange. And they said, the interesting thing about quarks is if you do this experiment this way, they behave that way. But if you change the experiment, they behave a different way. And if you're not looking, they behave a different way. And it was this strange kind of thing. And what came out of that was a group of physicists who said, my physics led me to faith. I did not believe in God till I became a quantum physicist. And it was my physics that led me. Now, their physics did not bring them into the Christian faith. Their physics did not make them believe in Jesus, but in terms of the step from not believing in a God or a divine power behind the universe to making that transition, it was their physics that enabled them to do that, which is an incredibly powerful statement. And that foreshadows kind of where we go. So there's a strange thing out there. You can see it in Time Magazine. Matter of fact, there's been seven Time Magazine covers of essentially the same thing. Newsweek has had several also. The most common perception that you'll find in our culture is that somehow science and faith are incompatible. Not only are they incompatible, they are locked in some kind of an absolute fundamental conflict with each other. So much so that the term that's, that's often used is the Ward's term. That you have to choose either science or faith. You really can't grab both or it's science versus faith. And you see this language all over the place. Uh, very often it's expressed in the language of war. Now, the, the, this has a little interesting history. The language of war, that science and faith are at war with each other, emerged in the late 1800s. Would anybody want to uh, hazard a guess as to what was going on in the late 1800s? Darwin, okay. Uh, science and faith had basically been seen as, as either compatible, One's the handmaiden of the other, or even sister sciences. Uh, in the ancient world, what was called science was actually a form of philosophy called natural philosophy. So theology and natural philosophy were seen as you know, essentially being two sides of the same thing. But in 1858, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species, which is the more famous of the two, but it's the one in 1871 that really stirred up things because we weren't talking about finches anymore. 
we're talking about human beings and all this stuff about monkeys and all that kind of stuff comes in. Now, examples of this war mentality abound. For example, we've rewritten the story what happened uh, to Galileo. So that most people today, when they think about the Galileo story, what we think actually never happened, okay? It's actually mythology. And there's been several books published about this recently. We sort of project backwards and we see poor, you know, poor Galileo. What was he? He was the first martyr for science. And who martyred him? The church, the Catholic church. And so he was persecuted and all he wanted to do is look through his little telescope. And he was into reason, he was into science, and because he was into reason and he was into science, he was persecuted by an intolerant institution of the church which would bear none of that. Now, as we'll see in a few weeks, the truth is a little more complicated than that. Centuries later, we got Charles Darwin from the other side. He's not seen as the martyr. He's seen as the sort of the, the great champion for science. He's going to do battle against that evil thing called religion and that evil thing called belief in God. And many today would argue that he dealt a death blow to belief in God and to religion. It's interesting that today, of all the sciences, where is the core of opposition to religion and faith? Which science? Biology. Particularly the neo-Darwinians. So there's a group within this, very, very negative religion. You ever heard of the... Uh, the, the um, the New Atheists published a bunch of books a few years ago. They're within that. Uh, Dawkins and others are within that. Uh, more contemporary issues, intelligent design. You heard that? It's been bandied about quite a bit. The Texas school textbook controversies. Why does it always happen in Texas? <laughs> God, you know. Texas and Arkansas, just take a beat down, okay? Stem cell research, you know, and our own, own ex-president got involved in that. This idea that religion and science are in conflict or war with each other continues to be much alive today. So you get somebody like Richard Dawkins, who's one of the new atheists. He writes a book like The God Delusion. Um, so from the science side, he would see, and he's, he's one of about eight in this group, they would see all religion as irrational by definition. Religion is just irrational. To believe in God is a, what he calls a per not, not just an illusion, a pernicious illusion. It's dangerous, you know, or it's a delusion, as he says there. Uh, religion, according to him and others, is a great evil. And if we could just get rid of religion, the human race would be a lot better off. Now, not to be outdone, from the religious side, we got people throwing just as much mud. Uh, that I love this title of this book, Defeating Darwinism by Opening Minds. <laughs> just take that, okay? Uh, here... What's the enemy? The enemy is science, particularly in the form of that evil demonic being Charles Darwin, you know. So that must be defeated. And you have this, uh, it's the language of defeating is war language. You know, how do you, how do you prevail? Well, you prevail by getting rid of the opposition, by defeating them. Um, science can be seen as a force that, that threatens uh, key values or even the very foundations of faith. For example, if you've got uh, somebody arguing from science that they can prove there's no God, that's fairly significant. And that would threaten the very foundations of faith. There's a whole bunch of issues there. Can you read the little, the little line there? 
we have the fossils, we win. You know, <laughs> there's a whole series of this. Uh, but the most fundamental issue is, what are the limits and scopes of human knowledge? In other words, what's real? And how do we know what is real? I would submit to you that those are more fundamental questions than the question of whether or not there is a God. Because the question as to what is real, and is there a supernatural, and is there a metaphysical, and is there a transcendent, that issue is primary. Second issue would be, how do we know? What is the source of knowledge? Is empirical data all there is? Or is there such a thing as revelation? Now, your answers to those two questions will determine whether or not you can even talk about the reality of God. So it all, all sticks together. Um, is empirical scientific data all it is? Is it all that counts? Do the ones with the fossils win? Here's a variation on that. Got Mr. Darwin in his latter years up there. The basic question is, can science only be right if religion is wrong? And clearly there are some who advocate that. One only wins if the other loses. Well, what about the spiritual realm? I mean, we talk about that. The, the, is the physical, the material, all that exists? You know, there are some who argue if it's not empirical, it doesn't exist. Dawkins would argue that. Okay, well, that's an important discussion to have. Is that all that's real, or is there something more real than that? Can we meaningfully talk about the supernatural, the transcendent, the metaphysical, the realm that faith has historically been dealt with. What about miracles? What about the soul? Is all of this, as some would argue, simply nonsensical fantasy talking? Or is there a reality that underlies this language? And if there isn't a reality, how do we know? Where does the knowledge come from? Is revelation an actual form of knowledge? This is so important, we're probably going to spend one whole week on it. When we use the term revelation, what do we mean? What do we actually mean? What are we referring to? If revelation is source of knowledge about God and the things of God, what do we really mean by that? How do we know these things? And how does it relate to empirical or scientific knowledge? Uh, there are a variety of flashpoints that you're familiar with. Is there, in fact, a God? This is from the science viewpoint. Is there, in fact, a God that lies behind the larger reality within which we live? And how can we know? I mean, anybody can believe anything, right? The question is, how do you know? Is there, are there warrants for actually believing that? How did the universe get here? Was it an act of creation or random chance? By the way, that's not just a religious question. That is one of the most bounced around questions in science now. And the, and the area of science called cosmology. And you've heard of things like the anthropic principle and that kind of language. I mean, this is being, we got, we got physicists going at it with each other over this issue, which is, I find this hilarious myself. Uh, <laughs> behind the scenes, there is an even more fundamental issue, and it's this. Is our faith compatible with a modern scientific worldview. And you have to be careful about that because what we traditionally know as modern science, as the Newtonian universe, you know, the, the view that started with Copernicus, ended with Sir Isaac Newton, that, by the way, is dead and gone. We live in the post-Einstein universe. 
And so when we mean modern, what do we mean by that? Is our faith compatible with the latest science we've got? Of course, this book would say not. Is it irrational to believe, to have faith? Are we living in one world when we pray and a fundamentally incompatible, different reality when we flip a light switch? Are those two worlds, the world of prayer and the world of technology and science, are they just flat out incompatible? Or can they relate to each other? Let's be honest. Our faith goes way, way back. It came out of a time and it came out of a place and that gave shape to who we are and what we believe. It was a very, very different world. It was the ancient world. It was the pre-scientific world. They had science, but it was not modern science. What they meant by sci science was more likely to be Aristotle and Plato and the best thinking of the age, but it was different from the way we understand it. Our faith was expressed in language and in imagery of that world. And by the way, that depends on where you are in the Bible. It could be a Babylonian worldview. It could be a Greek worldview. It could be a Roman worldview. It, I mean, it, even within the ancient period, these things kind of shifted a lot, depending what the, the, the most recent studies were. Uh, now, in the ancient world, nobody sweated this. And this, is, this you need to know this. Nobody in the ancient world thought that there was a conflict between science and faith. They would have saw them as two sides of the same coin. Uh, most of human history, no conflict perceived. No conflict gets perceived until about the 1500s. Then it becomes an issue. About the 1500s, we have the emergence of modern science. It bega begins with a guy named Copernicus. We're going to look at what he dealt with here in just a second. Uh, the interesting thing, and it ends 200 years later with Sir Isaac Newton, and in between is born in that two-century period what we would call modern science with the Newtonian mechanistic worldview. We just had a view of what the universe is like. It's like a big clock, okay? It's a closed system. It ticks. It works. We think we understand it. We've got Newton's laws of motion. We've got the laws of physics. We can explain everything. Now, some of these new ways, a la 1500s to 1700s, seem to be in conflict with some of the more ancient ways. 5th century B.C., 2nd century A.D. There's this, we had a new, different way of kind of looking at that. Now, some of these conflicts would seem silly. You've seen this little deal before? This was actually a debate. This, is not, this was a scientific debate, by the way. Does the sun orbit the earth? By the way, what would common sense tell you? Yeah, it does. Sunrise, sunset, you know, and all the empirical data indicated a heliocentric view of the universe. We're here. We're not moving. Everything else moves around us. I can see it every night. I can see it every day. It made total sense. This young whippersnapper upstart Copernicus says, now wait a minute. I think we go around the sun. And by the way, books written on this, he had no new empirical data. He had no science to back it up. It was brilliant. He was right. But he had no science. So there's this huge argument going on about which one of those. Uh, is it heliocentric or is it geocentric? Now, the part that gets me is, at what point did you decide this was a religious issue? <coughs> it was. It became one. 
So it became not just a matter of science, it became a matter of, we're talking about this within the church, and poor Mr. Galileo stepped right in the middle of that, and that's an interesting story. Um, other conflicts don't seem as silly. If the debate is, can we speak meaningfully about whether or not God exists, that's not funny. That's something that we care a lot more about. And there are people on both sides of that issue. Can we talk about the spiritual? Can we talk about revelation? Can we talk about the soul? There are many today who would challenge these very ideas. I, I love the title of this book, God, the Failed Hypothesis. <laughs> We're operating from a scientific paradigm. How science shows that God does not exist. Now, anybody who knows anything about science knows that science cannot prove that God does not exist, just as God cannot, they cannot prove that God does exist. But does this in the name of science? Victor Stengel, again, is one of the new atheists. Okay, one result of this perceived conflict is that people of faith have often been seen, and this is really, you see this in philosophy and in, in the great thinkers the last two centuries. Science has begun to explain much of what we used to not know. And, and science has been in ascendancy for 500 years now. More and more of what we did not know, we can now explain. So what happens to religion when science can explain more and more of the universe? What happens? Gets pushed aside. Matter of fact, there's a whole phenomenon called God in the gaps. God in the gaps. That we try to think about, in other words, we leave God to be the answer to the questions that we can't answer yet. That's dangerous. Because every time science answers a new question, God shrinks. And it's just one of those, one of those deals that's been going on. It seems like religion has, and philosophers have talked about this, religion seems to be fighting this you know, rear guard action, whereas we have the triumphant advance of science, answering question after question after question, shoving back the dark of ignorance, and of course religion with it, um, and that God and religious matters get increasingly put into the gaps. Anybody recognize this feller? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. He made an observation one time about this I thought is worth seeing. This is letters and papers from prison. Uh, he is in prison for participating in, a, in a, uh, an attempt to assassinate Hitler. This is the leading ethicist in the Christian faith in the 20th century who his faith led him to participate in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. There's a whole bunch of things we could get into there. How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If, in fact, the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, and he's writing this in the 1930s, and that is bound to be the case. By the way, by the 1930s, Einstein has already had his miracle year. He's already published his five papers of that year, and then later he's published the other paper on general relativity. Quantum physics is full-blown going, and all this stuff's out there. And by the way, this is all happening in Germany, where Dietrich happens to live, and some of them even go to the same school. When God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. If we are to find God, we are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. Looking at some different things here. For others, the external world has been conceded to science. There are some people of faith who say, we concede that the external world is the purvey of science. That's the realm of science. 
Science can explain all that. So that would leave the realm of religion where? It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of religious feelings. Out there, the external world is the world of science. Inside, now we get all these neurobiologists that are getting there, you know, they're starting to un unwrap the human mind and all that, and that gets a little dicey out there. Faith and religion being relegated to the inner world experience. Uh, another twist here, some seek scientific proof for the things of God. I love this title, Scientific Proof of God have not read the book. I think I'd get upset, but that's all right. Okay? <laughs> what we're looking for is we want some empirical evidence to undergird our faith. So, if we could only find that stupid ark, <laughs> or if we just have the right test on the Shroud of Turin, and we could authenticate, then we would have, what would we have? We would have objective, empirical, factual, scientific proof that would undergird our faith. And then we can move forward. You know, it would validate what we believe. Uh, it would make what we believe more credible in the world today. Um, now, here's the danger. Behind that is the tacit assumption that what counts is empirical data. Be very careful. The fox is in the hen house, okay? If all that matters is empirical data, and that seems to be what's implied, if, people, if I could just only find this data or something like that. That's the whole thing you need to look at. Uh, others have felt they have to choose between faith and the modern scientific worldview. Uh, we don't have too many of these buggies here, but any of y'all have been out near Paris, Texas? The Mennonite, very large community out there. You'll see that out there some. But within the Christian tradition, there are some who said the disconnect is so great that we're just basically going to reject the modern world the modern view, and then of course there's all kinds of shades of this, uh, from pretty radical to pretty soft. Uh, they make no attempt to reconcile faith in the modern world. Uh, there are some who are openly hostile to the modern world, or others, I think more commonly, would simply just ignore it, make no attempt to kind of connect the dots with that. This is interesting. Others have abandoned, they're, they're, they're still Christian, they're still in the church. This is how they handle the conflict. I'm going to abandon the parts of the faith that bother me. And it'd be amazing how many people actually do that. Uh, it's incompatible with my worldview. Therefore, I'm going to take a view of Christianity, and this has several permutations, but one is what I want to go for is the ethics of the faith. Okay? What Christianity, the, the ethics of Jesus, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, that's what it means to be Christian. I'm not going to worry about the Trinity or whether God exists, or there's a soul, or anything like that. You know, this doesn't fit my worldview, but I can be a Christian and just keep with the ethical stuff. Or social. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we're meaningfully engaged in the world and the cause of social justice. And so we reduce it down to that. Uh, rejecting, ignoring. Now, very famous man took this approach. Remember, uh, have you ever heard of the Jeffersonian Bible? This is the way you do it, okay? Yeah. You get scissors. <laughs> you cut out the parts you like, and you cut away the parts you don't, and you get the Bible you've always wanted to have kind of thing. You know, and just, he, well, he was a rational empiricist. And he was a man of science, and he's one of the leading thinkers of the age. And so he wanted a faith that was compatible with that. The problem is, for him, much of the faith was not compatible. You know, fix that puppy right up real quick. Now, 
It's in this setting in which there's all kinds of stuff going on. I want to say to you that one of the most remarkable documents I've ever read in my life, and I read a lot this year, is the United Methodist Book of Discipline and its statement on science and faith. Now, some of you know that this last year we looked at Methodist belief and extensive, but um, this is one of those places where I am so happy I'm a Methodist. I found the right church. I want you to hear this, okay? It gives us a challenge and an invitation, and this challenge and invitation is basically kind of sort of the, the model out of which this next 11 weeks is going to drive. Paragraph 104, this is the, for those of you who are not familiar with this, the only body that can speak authentically and, and, and authoritatively for the Methodist Church is General Conference. General Conference speaks in a written document. The written document is called the Book of Discipline. There's a lot of stuff in there, but part two is our doctrinal statement. So what I'm going to share with you is the official United Methodist stand on science and faith. So here it goes. Since all truth is from God, by the way, that is one of the most remarkable statements you're ever going to see. Think about it. All truth, and there's many religious groups that would not say that. We don't care where it comes from. We don't care if it's scientific or artistic or philosophical, biology, chemistry, physics. All truth comes from God. And since that is true, efforts to discern the connection between reason, revelation, faith, and reason, science, well, let's just say it, faith and science, grace and nurture are useful endeavors. Now, that doesn't sound too radical until you read the next sentence. In developing credible and communicable doctrine. It's not, science is not good just as science. Science is good to help us shape our beliefs as Christian. It helps us. It makes it credible, believable. We can articulate our faith in such a way that others can, can make sense of it. It's communicable. We can, we can actually express what we believe with that. We seek nothing less, this is the one that's on the poster outside, than a total view of reality that means euphemism for science. One that is decisively informed by the promises and imperatives of the Christian gospel. Science and faith. Science and religion. Though we know well that such an attempt is always, will always be marred by the limits and distortions characteristic of human knowledge, we'll never get there without error. No, nevertheless, by our quest for reasoned understandings of the Christian faith, we seek to grasp, express, and live out the gospel in a way that will commend itself to thoughtful persons who are seeking to know and follow God's ways. Now it gets interesting. We recognize science as the legitimate interpretation of God's natural world. We this, no equivocation, we recognize it. We affirm science as science is good. We affirm that. We affirm the validity of claims of science in describing the natural world, the world of empirical phenomena, the world that science was created to deal with. Although, it's a big although, we preclude science 
from making authoritative claims about theological issues. Science can talk about things that fall within the purvey of science. But science, and anybody knows, uh, scientific method knows this, science was never designed to answer all questions. Science was never designed to deal with everything. Science was designed to deal, and it does it very, very well, with a particular area, the empirical, the realm of the senses, and at that it excels. Science and theology are complementary rather than mutual, mutually incompatible. We therefore encourage dialogue between the scientific and theological communities and seek the kind of participation that will enable humanity to sustain life on earth and by God's grace increase the quality of our common lives together. Now, that is in fact the Methodist tradition. That is in fact the views of John Wesley and that is in our standards today. That is the official Methodist position on science and in faith. It also just so happens to reflect the view of many of the great scientists of all ages. This, in fact, was the view of Galileo. Matter of fact, yeah, we'll, we'll get some quotes, but Galileo had some wonderful quotes about that. Um, anyway, we'll get to that. But then Einstein, same thing. We got four papers. We got a paper in the back if you've not gotten one. Four articles that Einstein wrote in the 1930s and 1940s about the relationship between science and faith. That's his basic view. In our quest for the, uh, this reality that embraces both science and faith, that is what's going to drive this series for the next 11 weeks. Th there's two poles, science and faith, moving back and forth, trying to dialogue with each other. We're going to do three parts, you might say three mini-series over the next 11 weeks. First part, we're going to spend three weeks dealing with some of the foundational questions and, and definitions. If you've ever had a philosophy course, you know it's everything's in the definitions, right? If you concede somebody the definitions, they've already won. So the really big issues are the issues up front. For example, we're going to begin with what do we mean by faith or religion? And, and not everything about that, but what are the basic claims that we make as people of faith that are relevant for the discussion of the interaction with science? Um, the nature of reality. Is there a supernatural? Is there a metaphysical? Is there a transcendent? The nature of religious knowledge. Does revelation actually refer to anything? Is there a God behind what we see? Uh, these are all claims about the nature of reality, and they interface and overlap with claims made by science, and we need to kind of look at those. Number two, what is science? You think you would know. A lot of people don't know. Science has a very specific definition. How does it work? What can it do? What are its limits? What lies within the purview of science, or purvey, and what lies beyond the, its ability to answer? And this is going to raise a huge issue called naturalism. There are many today who would put forth naturalism as science. There's a larger group within the scientific community that says naturalism is not science. It is a fundamental distortion of science. The new atheists all put forward naturalism as science. Now, this is, that's a debate within the scientific community, uh, making claims that go beyond science, uh, crossing over into metaphysics and theology. We have scientists. Okay, I can prove that God does not exist. That is not a scientific claim. That is not a scientific statement. 
it meets none of the standards of good science that any scientist in the world would use. It is a metaphysical theological statement made by a scientist, okay? We can talk about it at the level of, of uh, theology, not science. This is important because a lot of the discussion that's out there, particularly with the new atheists, is based on misinformation about science, misinformation about faith, or usually misinformation about both. Second part of the series. This is the part I find the most exciting. Recent developments in science. I mean, I thought I kept up with science. I had no idea what's going on out there. I mean, it's just, it'll blow you away. And how these affect the conversation. We'll take three weeks on this. First of all, Einstein's theory is the relativity. I don't know how many years I've just avoided getting into that because I just thought, ooh, you know, physics is not my forte. The math may be on us. The concepts are not, okay? And then physicists say all the time. The key philosophical concepts of Einstein, of, of, uh, of, of basic physics, fundamental physics, uh, quantum physics are not beyond us. Now, don't try to go with the math. The number of people in the world who know it are probably on your hand, but, but we can understand that. Einstein fundamentally changed the view of the universe we have. Another area is the whole area of astronomy, cosmology, and what's called astrophysics, uh, the Big Bang. I've heard books arguing from a faith stance against the Big Bang. Folks, the Big Bang is the best tool we, ha we have for proving God exists. The Big Bang proves there is a supernatural, okay? And we're going to spend a week on that. It's, it's one of the most remarkable things out there. Who here has not heard of the anthropic pr principle, okay? Argues that the world, the universe that we live in, is not by chance. Can't be by chance. Mathematically, it's impossible for it to be by chance. These are scientists making this claim, not theologians. By the way, some of these scientists have become pastors <laughs> because their science led them to cross over. We want to look at that. Finally, fundamental physics. In particular, what we want to look at is the most weird thing the human mind has ever conceived. Quantum physics. We want to talk about non-locality. We want to talk about quantum entanglement. We want to talk about this really weird thing called the quantum enigma. That consciousness is required existence to happen. This is physics, and it sounds like theology. Okay? These developments have fundamentally altered the way we see the universe. Ironic little footnote. The new atheists are still operating out of a Newtonian worldview. They are so dated with their science that they can't even meaningfully enter into the conversation. Science has left them in the dust. Okay? Uh, it's also opened up new ways of understanding and articulating it. We have, because of modern science, more ways of talking about God, arguing for the existence of God, and arguing for the reality of matters of faith than we've ever had in the history of the human race. And where do these tools come to? They come to us from the realm of science. Does everybody accept them? No. But folks, there's a lively debate going on out there, and we need to be a part of that. Third part of the series, what we're going to do is just, and then we're going to go back and relook at some of the more, the specific topics that we looked at. Uh, short version is uh, God. What can we know about God? The reality. 
Is there a supernatural? Can we meaningfully talk about that? Revelation. What kind of knowledge is that? We need to, we need to really look at that. Um, and going on and on. We'll take about four weeks to kind of go through that. Uh, some of the core beliefs that we've got in terms of the post-Einstein world. Um, can we prove that God exists? That is an interesting debate, okay? And I would have said that it's interesting that, that until fairly recently, all of the arguments for the existence of God were intellectual. Now there are some arguments for the existence of God that come to us from astronomy and from physics. It's a game changer. Um, the Big Bang, the anthropic principle. Again, we're going to recover it. Uh, the issue of evolution and creation, not just the Big Bang and that it started, but is there anything guiding the ongoing unfolding of the universe? That brings in Darwin. And is what Darwin's arguing something that's fundamentally against religion, or is it compatible with religion? Uh, there's this whole argument about intelligent design out there. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of debate about that. We need to look at that real quick. And finally, the issue of life after death and the soul. By then, you'll be so sick of science, you'll be ready for anything. <laughs> okay. okay, 11 weeks. Now, uh, there is a reading list. Some of you have been hounding me for that. About 80% of what I read is not here, okay? There's a, there's a lot of stuff, but there's some stuff there. For example, on the top, there's a series of books, the second section, The Relationship Between Religion and Science. If you want to start just a little teeny book, that first one. It's actually one of the older books, 2008, ancient. Well, you've got to stay up with science because it, it'll slip right out from under you. But there's some good stuff there, and if you're interested in, in conversing with me, I'd be happy to talk about that. Again, the articles by Einstein are interesting, and uh, I think it's going to be quite a ride <laughs> the next 11 weeks. So, uh, welcome. Next week, we're going to talk about what is the nature of religion, what is the nature of faith, uh, what is at stake from our side as we enter into this discussion with 